Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome to MSU today, Patricia Orlowitz, whose professional journey since her Spartan days has been one, frankly, that many just dream of. An international development advisor, she is concluding a two-year project in Bangladesh, and that after a three-and-a-half-year stint in Afghanistan. She's also been uh, a magazine editor. She's been the owner of a large, very successful agricultural advertising firm. And Patricia is a Distinguished Alumni Award recipient from MSU's College of Ag and Natural Resources. Uh, Patricia, so great to have you on MSU today. It is my pleasure to join you. You know, as I look over your career accomplishments, and uh, I've followed them pretty closely, but I see your communications career life before 1997 as sort of one half, and then your international development life since. Give us an overview. As your introduction said, Kurt, really, I, I view my life in two different portions. The start was directly in agricultural communications with the magazines and communications for agricultural companies, offering information to agribusiness people, to farmers, and everyone. But then I've always believed in volunteering. So somewhere around 1996, I signed up with a volunteer organization that also did work overseas, and they were doing work in the post-Soviet Union. And around about January 1997, they offered me an opportunity to work in what's called international development in Moldova, which was one of the smaller of the Soviet republics. And that really became the start of a new career, uh, which still used ag communications, still kept me in agriculture, but I made the move over to development. And development uh, in the international sense is a process of aiding countries to be more self-reliant, to improve the quality of life in those poorer countries. We sometimes call them third world countries or developing countries but helping them develop economically so they can function and support services and improve the health and nutrition of citizens, improve their agriculture so they can feed their citizens. And with a budget from an improved economy, they can have schools and build infrastructure such as roads that help get food to people or collect ag production. And I was lucky to make this transition via a volunteer assignment Uh, In Moldova, at the time, they were going through privatization or the breakup of the former collective farms, the kolhoses. And that opportunity led to a change in career. And and since then, I've worked pretty much entirely overseas in developing countries. I'd like to say that I've worked in the ABCs, uh, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Cambodia. And then that I've worked in two X countries. I worked in Moldova, the ex-Soviet Union, and I worked in Kosovo, which is the ex-Yugoslavia. And each of those countries needed different skills and needed different things to try to develop their own capacity to develop economically, democratically, in governance, in healthcare, and education. And I was lucky to be able to work in that space. Well, Patricia, let's uh, zero in on some of those uh, projects that you've been involved in. But before we do that, you've mentioned Moldova. <clears throat> uh, without wishing to, uh, uh, you know, to embarrass you, but uh, you were presented with the Republic of Moldova Civic Medal in 2001 by the president of Moldova. 
and your work there was featured in People Magazine back in 2000. Tell us a little bit more about what must have been a hugely satisfying uh, project in Moldova. In Moldova, I was working on a project funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development. I worked with a non-governmental organization called East-West Management Institute, and we were carrying out the project to privatize the 1,000 collective farms in Moldova, get title back to the people who were the members of that collective farm, and break up the property, whether that was the tractors um, or the uh, dairies, uh, and get that back in the hands of individual people. And that was extremely satisfying. And what started out as a pilot project to really test the law, because after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the independence of Moldova, they had written a law supporting privatization, supporting private land ownership, but they hadn't done anything about it. So we had to design a process that used a basic law and help write secondary legislation that showed how you would do it and then carry it out farm by farm and individual by individual. And that's what really helped me having sort of the ag background and the communications background from Michigan State. But nobody had ever privatized collective farms. They'd only done it in reverse. They'd only taken in all the individual land ownership. And once we got land titles to 1 million citizens, privatized uh, all but a handful of collective farms. The handful that weren't privatized were those that were in an area called Transnistria, which is still under disputed control of Russia. And those individuals got their land titles back. And when you went to ceremonies handing out the land titles, you saw the older people were always honored first. And they held up their land titles with tears in their eyes saying, you will never take this away again. And that's when you realized what land ownership means, something we may take for granted here, but getting back your your land, getting back a chance to be your own farmer and make your own decisions was uh, a memorable things because they remember turning in their land and being forced to turn in their land and their livestock to the collective farm. Uh, and that's what gave me the, the civic medal from the president of Moldova. You know, that's an amazing story and uh, people getting deeds to land with tears in their eyes. Very poignant. That was also uh, mentioned in the People magazine article. Uh, my guest is Patricia Orlowitz. She's a very proud Spartan alumna and she has done international development work all over the world. Uh, let's talk about some of the other projects, uh, maybe one or two. I know Moldova is right up there, but one or two that were particularly satisfying and maybe an example of one or two that were really tough? Um, I'll say a, a job that I found very rewarding uh, because you could see it on an individual basis was in Cambodia. Um, one of the areas I worked in there particularly was healthcare. And realize healthcare includes nutrition, so that means improving agriculture um, and aquaculture, I'll say, because fish is a very big uh, source of nutrition in Cambodia. But working on reducing maternal mortality um, being pregnant in U.S. may be something people are very happy to hear, but if you're in many developing countries, hearing, finding out that you're pregnant can be very scary because so many women die in childbirth. And in Cambodia, we reduced maternal mortality 
significantly and built up the local capacity of whether it was skilled birth attendants, not quite a midwife, but at least they had the basic skills, building up skills at hospitals for complicated pregnancies, and then helping even village volunteers know enough to help motivate their neighbors in a small village to seek health care and seek prenatal care. And I think one experience in Cambodia that was most moving for me was an interview with a volunteer health worker. She's in a village. She's not paid. But her job is to spread the messages about proper health care, such as telling women to get to the local clinic, which might be several miles away walking, for a prenatal visit. And when we asked her, why do you do this? And her answer struck me. She said, I have lost seven children in birth. I don't want any other woman to go through that. And that's when you realize reducing maternal mortality, that's that's what it means. You're saving the mother, you're saving these children, and you're giving an opportunity for a country to really develop the best resource, which is its own people. And that really moved me quite a bit. You asked about a tough assignment. I will say everything is tough uh, and rewarding at the same time. I did find Afghanistan difficult to work in, uh, but also rewarding. Um, The difficult situation is that your uh, security situation was such that you had to move on a limited basis. And when we moved outside, I lived on a military base. You moved outside the base. You were traveling with the military, heavy security. So it means you don't get as much as the one-on-one engagement that you would in a normal situation. But I still managed to talk to people and I still managed to get out and see our projects in action. At that time, I was working for USAID And what I liked is that I was living and working with the military. I was on a military base, so I did get out a lot, but I also saw what the military were doing at the same time. And I understood how the balance of both the development side that I was doing, working with the basic citizens, worked well with the military who were giving us the security that we needed uh, and helping defeat uh, terrorism in Afghanistan. So difficult and rewarding at the same time. Uh, We're featuring the uh, incredible career of uh, MSU alumna Patricia Orlowitz, an international development advisor who's done projects all over the world. Uh, Patricia, let's move from maybe the specific to uh, some uh, more general considerations about uh, foreign assistance. Uh, first, let's start. Since the show is MSU today, w- w- the role of uh, universities like Michigan State in some of these projects, maybe not necessarily those that you were involved in, but in general. Uh, Michigan State and, uh, gosh, many or if not most of the land-grant universities and other universities in the U.S. are quite active working internationally. Um, As a student, of course, I remember seeing that just in terms of uh, my fellow students at that time in the 70s. I remember Iranian students in my classroom I had a Brazilian dorm mate. It was great seeing that mix. MSU internationally, for example, is working in different countries. In Cambodia, I was very fortunate to 
the opportunity have the opportunity to develop a evaluation of a program that we were doing and an MSU professor developed the evaluation protocol Dr. Suvetti I think is a superb evaluator but more than that he's an in-touch international expert so when he's out there working he's not only doing the evaluation but he's talking to people and getting more ideas so in this case, MSU became part of an evaluation that not only did an evaluation, but also taught the Cambodians, um, officials in different departments, how to do their own evaluations so that in the future they could evaluate their projects, their work, their assistance, and determine was it giving them the results they wanted. And that's the kind of expertise that MSU offers is both building that capacity in the country side by side as they carry out a project and then helping evaluate and do other work as the work is being done by others. Um, MSU is also a partner in many other countries, uh, was doing work in Bangladesh, uh, has sent experts to dozens of other countries. And it's critical to keep that student engagement so that their professors and others are giving them input on what they're seeing around the world and exposing others to that. And then same thing, you're bringing all kinds of expertise from every department at MSU. You can call on that to help on an international project. I think Congress understands that as well. So it is certainly an important part of our funding to know that universities are part of the equation in solving the challenges in the developing world. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned Dr. Murari Savedi because, uh, as you may know, I had the pleasure of doing some international work with him, both in Mexico and in Nepal. And as you said, uh, he's, uh, he's clearly a citizen, an international citizen, and an extremely uh, good evaluation expert, no question about that. But you know, you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, of people understanding uh, foreign assistance. As you well know, a lot of people across the political spectrum question the efficacy and the amount that we spend on foreign assistance. What is it that folks should keep in mind when um, considering this this question? When we look at foreign assistance uh, and sort of foreign policy in general, we say there are three branches of government, three arms that carry out our U.S. national security policy. And I'll say this is security. Um, the three legs to our national security stool, so to speak, are diplomacy, that's the State Department, defense, that's our armed services, and development, and that's USAID and people like me and, and people like uh, the MSU uh, students and professors that are working in international development. At any given time, one of these three branches are doing what you need in foreign policy and national security to try to ensure a more stable world. Sometimes the tool you need to use is is just diplomacy is just good communications and a lot of negotiations, whether it's on trade agreements or anything else. 
Sometimes the situation has gotten bad that it is going to be defense. And other times it's going to be a combination that uses all three and development will be part of that. That's what I saw in Afghanistan. Um, the best combination to me of foreign policy and national security was using all three tools. So in Afghanistan, defense was engaged. They were certainly fighting to defeat the Taliban. You had diplomacy engaging, whether it was building relationships with government and helping strengthen the region's connections, and development where I was working to, for example, uh, introduce trade linkages that had fallen apart between Afghanistan and India. So Afghanistan's prized pomegranates, which we were helping teach new farmers how to grow the best pomegranates, could be exported to India, which had the demand for it. And if you can use that blend of those three Ds, diplomacy, defense, and development, that will give you a more stable world. That will give you a world that is economically growing and offering opportunities to citizens so that the citizens of the developing world can be served and see a brighter future. So they're not going to turn as much, we hope, to violence, but see development as the opportunity and a brighter future. Hopefully, if these three things work together, and sometimes just one, sometimes just development, um, we'll have better markets for our projects, our products that we're growing. We'll have better uh, relationships. We'll have better opportunities, whether it's travel. And we'll see a better world health, which today during COVID, we understand how interlinked we are on the health side as well. So if development can help healthcare in other countries and prevent the spread of disease, um, I think the world is going to be a better place. You know, that's interesting, the three-legged stool. Uh, I think a lot of Americans, uh, most of our listeners would understand the diplomacy leg, uh, the defense leg. It's kind of the development leg that maybe uh, folks have the least understanding of. Kirk, I think you're right. Development is is a hard thing to grasp. When I first started working on it, I didn't understand what it was. But when I go back to thinking about what does a country want to do? And you can take the U.S. in early days. You want to have better infrastructure so you can get your agricultural products from the farm to the market, but you need to have roads. Well, how do you develop those roads and how do you finance those roads? If you're a developing country, you need to find a way to collect taxes or some kind of income, but you don't even know how to do that. That was the case in the former Soviet Union. So we had to look at educating, informing, and helping write laws that would say, how do you collect taxes and how do you then put those taxes to work? Um, and it may be uh, customs and duties that you're imposing as well. Anything that you can do to collect a budget. And then look at things that we have learned in education early grade reading being the foundation of, of education. And how do you teach early grade reading to the first and second graders better? If we can share those skills with a developing country, that's the kind of development that helps them improve education of all their citizens. So I think development is a very broad term of improving the capacity of a country 
so that it can grow economically, grow democratically, uh, grow in services such as education and healthcare to its citizens, so that eventually countries will be developed and self-reliant. They may not be uh, first world countries and have everything solved, but they will be on the path to becoming more and more self-reliant so that eventually they themselves will become donor nations offering foreign assistance and helping other countries. I found Bangladesh an interesting mix. It is a very poor country. It's 165 million people in a country the size of Illinois. And it is moving into slowly a lower middle income category. So eventually it will become a nation that does not require donor assistance. And right now that donor assistance and development is helping Bangladesh improve its health care, improve its own capacity to respond to disasters from cyclones and monsoon floods and earthquakes so that it won't be calling on and needing assistance and economically will grow so that it's stable and offering opportunity to citizens to continue their lives in Bangladesh, but see a brighter life, um, a better future. And if development can improve the capacity of those countries uh, so that they can continue on that positive trajectory, I think we'll see citizens more satisfied with their lives and thus a greater stability, greater security around the world. I think that may be uh, one of the best uh, elucidations of development that I've ever heard or read. And weaving those examples in really underscores and I think helps folks understand uh, the scope of development. I'm talking with Patricia Orlowitz, a graduate of Michigan State University who has had a career that has spanned the globe. Uh, Patricia, speaking of Michigan State University, let's take a moment to uh, go back and, and, and think about your days at Michigan State and uh, how, how did those days at MSU prepare you for the amazing experiences that you've had since? I think MSU uh, totally prepared me, not for uh, just my international experience, but for all of the jobs that I've had. Um, whether it was a, a good internship, because MSU lined me up with a great internship, and certainly that opened my eyes to the interconnectedness of agriculture to many different things. MSU gave me the basic skills. Uh, I'm lucky to say, Kirk, you were one of my advisors uh, and gave me, whether it was basic communications, basic journalism, so that I could write and continue to explain the work that I was doing or the information that others needed to help them do their jobs better. I think MSU also exposed me to many other communities uh, I talked about meeting other students, uh, professors from around the world. Um, but I also think MSU gave me something even more basic, and that's an appreciation of opportunities to be able to listen and learn and keep learning all the time. Um, I was definitely inspired in MSU by a female professor, my advisor, Dr. Maxine Ferris. And I certainly would call her a role model and a mentor. Uh, 
at that time, I would say she was one of the, the few female professors in the College of Agriculture. Um, but she just went about her work as a talented professional um, and shared that information with all students. She took pride in students, and she has to be one of the best listeners I've met. And she herself is an example of, of really being a, a lifelong learner. Um, she's continued to develop in her career. So perhaps somebody who was more of a, a journalistic and straight communications writer, she's now come out with two fiction books um, in the past few years in her 80s. So if that's not an inspiration from MSU, even after my graduation, I, I don't know what else could be. She inspires me because I'm hoping that I can continue to be as active as she is still today. And she just celebrated her 90th birthday. Yeah, Dr. Ferris, uh, we're both fortunate to have her as a major mentor in our lives. And yep, just turned 90. And what a dear lifelong friend she's been uh, for both of us. Uh, that's certainly true. And I think both of us would say she's been a mentor and that's really one piece of advice I would offer to any student or, or any young professional is search out those mentors. And that doesn't mean you have to ask somebody to be a mentor, and I put that in quotes, but look at those people and listen to those people and ask questions and see what they do and ask if you can spend just a few times, whether it's after a class, and say, how did you develop your listening skill? Or how can I be a better listener? Or how can I be a better leader like you? Or mimic those examples that you see in people you would call mentors. And that certainly is something that any student should think about. And I was just very lucky to have Dr. Maxine Ferris as, as a mentor as well. I think Maxine also shows a trait that MSU emphasizes, and that's volunteering and engaging. Um, I think it's the land-grant philosophy of outreach, and you certainly see that at MSU. So I know I benefited as a student by being active in many different organizations. Um, not all agriculture. I worked on union film board, but I've continued that throughout my life, and it was a volunteer assignment that changed my career into international development. So I say you never know where a volunteer assignment will lead you or what door it will open up and take advantage of it. That's a great segue. Uh, that's great advice for young people. Uh, uh, MSU Today host Russ White loves this question. But in addition to those, uh, in addition to what you just said about mentors and volunteer work, specifically in terms of communications for young people who may be aspiring for a career that even approaches yours, what advice might you give them in addition to what you've already said? I think you have to, in your career, look for opportunities that may not say communications. So I look at my counterparts in the army who are in civil affairs and public affairs in the army, public information, and they're doing information, they're doing communications, but they may not always call it that. So I worked with great colleagues in Afghanistan, in the Army, who were running 
preparedness programs and development programs from a different perspective, but working hand in hand with me on the development from the U.S. Agency for International Development side. So I think communications experts no longer need to look just at magazines and radio in agriculture as we used to, but look for it in other ways. Um, so whether that's at a company, whether that's at a different branch of government, communications is a basic skill and everybody is going to need that. And if you are open to those other opportunities and look elsewhere and even help persuade those companies that what they're missing is a good communicator, I think you'll find fascinating opportunities out there. Uh, Patricia, I mentioned in the introduction that you were uh, wrapping up a two-year project in Bangladesh. Uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Well, at this point, um, I'm I'm looking at stepping back from the U.S. Agency for International Development and retiring from that, but I'll be looking at other opportunities uh, with some of the implementing partners and others in USAID to see how I can do short-term assignments around the world. And that may be virtually now um, because of COVID, travel is so much more difficult. But if I can still engage in that sense, I hope that I can. Well, uh, and that epitomizes what you just said earlier about a lifetime of engagement, not just uh, necessarily a 20 or 30 year career. Man, it's been so much fun talking to Patricia Orlowitz, Spartan alumna. Uh, the recipient of the Distinguished Alumni Award from the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources and a success in so many different dimensions of her professional life. Patricia, I can't tell you how much fun this has been, and I want to thank you. Uh, MSU Today thanks you. Russ White thanks you for your time. My pleasure.